21, Servant Mode and Service Opportunities. When you first quit drinking, you'll find it hard to make sense of things. And I'm sorry to say, even after years of sobriety, you will still find it difficult. How easily the order of priority can get mixed up and tossed about and sorted into the wrong slots. Things start to go awry. Or rather, I myself begin to go awry. Life will always go awry, whether I like it or not. But with the right order of things, I can deal better when there is a solid grip at the top to hang on to. Life's problems become simplified when the order of priorities remains tidy and well-kept. Coupled tightly to that ordering is one all-important maxim that helps keep the order in place. And that maxim is this. My life is not about me. For anyone in recovery from any kind of addiction, there is a mandate to turn away from yourself and start focusing on others. And that's a hard thing to do. There are certain maxims or sayings that I've tucked away to help me in life, and this is one of those key phrases. When my life is about me, I tend to isolate. If I'm isolating, then I know I'm going in the wrong direction. For much of my life, I pushed all my energy into goals and achievements, which are not bad in themselves, but they were the highest thing, and there's the problem. I've heard a sermon from Timothy Keller, a Presbyterian, suggests that you need to approach life in servant mode, as Jesus served us. He didn't have to do that, but he did. He could do whatever he wanted, but he didn't. Servant mode is a two-word magical phrase because when kids or spouse or co-workers ask for something, if you utter in your mind the magic phrase, servant mode, it's much easier to respond cheerily, especially when you don't feel like responding cheerily. This works, and of course, when I don't do it, then I grumble and complain and wish to be left alone. There's that never-ending notion to isolate, clawing back to the surface, and I need to kick that crawling beast back into the pit about five times a day. When I quit drinking, my sponsor said to just say yes if someone needs a volunteer. If someone needs help with something, like helping at an event or unclogging a toilet, just do it. These are service opportunities. Service opportunities. Just say yes. When someone I know sees me at some event, they say, how did you get roped into this? And I tell them about saying yes to service opportunities. And they usually laugh and ask, how's that working out for you? And then that's usually when I tell them that it's working out very well, uh, much better than I ever expected. And they probably think I fell off my bike and hit my head. Just like servant mode, this idea of service opportunity is another solid two-word reminder of my life is not about me. And that's a very hard thing to remember and keep in your mind. The miracle of faith to me is that it takes away the need for self. The world is obsessed with self and most of us fall into that trap. I do, all the time. Watching advertisements during the Olympics this year, I noticed that every single ad was selling a vision of self to the viewers and the buyers. The hallmarks of goodness in modern culture is getting what you want in one of four areas, possessions, pleasure, honor, or power. Those four categories can be expanded into subcategories, 
and those into further subcategories and corners where the varieties of vanity and lust and envy live. But those four major categories sum up the teaching of our modern world as we have been bashed over the head with ads and messaging since leaving the womb. There is this endless TV and internet testimony about how intrinsically good we are and whatever we want to do is justified and that we deserve to get everything we want in life and then, then happiness will settle upon us like a butterfly. There's little chance we will see an ad mentioning that we are flawed individuals and that getting what we want is usually the cause of our unhappiness. We want what we don't need and then when we get our precious want, in a very short time, we want something else, something more. If you just consider this, do you know anyone that has enough money? No matter how much they have, they want more. Or if they have enough things, there's always something new or something shinier. Or the opposite happens. When we don't get what we want, we then love to play victim and cry the blues instead of moving on. Either way, the self is the master that we serve. We are justified in whatever we want, but that's self-justified. There's this great surprise answer that Jesus gives to the big questions of life. The saying, my life is not about me, basically liberates anyone who can come to believe it. However, it's almost impossible to believe that idea of selflessness without getting our approval from somewhere. This approval that we seek, we have to get it from somewhere or we can never feel whole. And it needs to be a sign of approval that exceeds those which can come from a car dealership or a house or a trophy or a diet or an online community or a boy boyfriend or girlfriend or drunken orgy. No one really wants to hear that they are a sinner, not nowadays. It's a dirty word today, but I suspect it is always been so because it disrupts our nature and instinct. I can't imagine the wall that the apostles were up against in pagan Rome or pagan Jerusalem telling people to repent of their sins. I suspect they ask, Re repent from our, our what? The instinct is to want and war and win our way to some version of success. To let go of that way of life to leave that headspace, well, you have to embrace your imperfection. The idea of you're perfect the way you are is fine if it helps me accept my flaws and my limits, but not when it is an enabler of my bad choices and elevates me into an object of perfection that needs no reform, that never needs to be challenged. As I say often in these articles, surrender to win. And this is the only kind of surrender that wins this battle and ultimately the war. It's surrendering up yourself. It's giving up yourself. I'm flawed and I know it. And I've had circumstances help me to realize that. But what we all want, what I really want is forgiveness and approval. And this is quite a dilemma. It's, kind of, it's a kind of approval that the world can never give. I've searched for it. I've looked for it, but I, it's not there. And then you think, after a while, once you come to believe you are flawed, you say, well, aren't I just a sinner? I'm a slow-learning rebel running from God so much of the time. And then there's a second question. Is there any kind of redemption for me? 
And Jesus answers both questions with this radical answer of yes. So, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I can be redeemed. There's the, one of those paradoxes. And suddenly, once you realize those two things, there's no higher approval needed. You don't need your boss giving you the approval. You don't need the person at, on the street corner approving you. You don't need a parent. You have it. You have it through grace. Once you have certainty that the flaws are real, but you are still somehow savable, you can still be salvaged, that God himself in human form died for your flaws, the need for outside honor diminishes and can even disappear entirely. I think of the woman at the well. That's a story in the gospel. Who's an, She's angry. But then she speaks with Jesus and then is joyful once she's liberated. She's internally cleansed once she's accepted. Jesus tell her, tells her she's saved and she's over the moon. If you've seen the TV show The Chosen, there's a scene of the woman at the well that is really well done. And it really drives the point home. So this is the oxymoron of it all. It's, I'm not okay, but I can be saved. I know, I know that atheists roll their eyes at that kind of language of being saved, especially with an exclamation point. I'm being saved. But there's no other way to say the truth of what happens on conversion. For those who say, I'll try anything once, as all I can say is, try faith. I avoided it for so long because it means admitting surrender of the ego. But that's what I was really looking for all along. And there were so many times I would be disappointed in the thing that I was putting in the highest place when I found out that it wasn't what I was really looking for. And the reason it wasn't what I was looking for is because it was not God. No accomplishment or possession or knowledge can ever give that peace to you that the woman at the well discovers. No amount of accolades or Botox will deliver that prize. What's funny is that giving up the self is so hard because even when you do, pride and self will emerge again like bacteria growing from the edges of your soul. Maintaining that peace requires a constant cleansing to keep that bacteria from overtaking the soul in a short time. In fact, as so often observed by non-believers, the righteous often have lost their sense of humility. And that's what the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector points out. The praying Pharisee is full of himself for being righteous and therefore has his ego propped up as a mini-god. The Pharisee prays, How glad I am to be unlike that publican slimeball over there. I keep all the rules. He's praying in this way, saying, Look at how good I am. I do all the right things. I fast. I follow the rules. Well, he's worshiping himself. The tax collector, or publican, depending on the translation, he knows what a mess his life is. And he has total humility and says a more sincere prayer than the holy man. His is the true change of heart and is therefore shown mercy. He says, God have mercy on me, a sinner, and he won't even look up. Clearly, the publican's prayer must be sincere, or he's no better off than the self-righteous Pharisee. It's interesting how the Pharisees are always getting beat up in the Gospels when they are the ones who are always following the rules. 
but Jesus is always pointing out that you can follow all the rules but still be spiritually dead. Humility before God cannot be faked. Imagine the same parable today with a Christian and a meth head or a transgender person or anyone who seems kind of on the outskirts of what is acceptable. If there's someone who doesn't fit the following all the rules, the Pharisee and the publican or the Pharisee and the tax collector can still be used in many ways today. Those who ask, seek, and knock, looking for God with humility, are never turned away. The Gospels are riddled with examples of this, but it's important to realize that those on the margins are not invited into Jesus' saving grace because they are on the margins, or social outcasts. They find him through grace and humility, and he affirms it. He never says to them, the tax collector received mercy, and then he went back to stiffing clients and committing the same sins. No, Jesus isn't validating ways of living. Instead, he's showing the way, the path to the light, which is not just through the law and rule, but through humility of heart and orientation away from the self. And the tax collector is changed because of it and no longer wants to do the things that he was doing before. The whole point of religion is not buildings or politics or morality contests. It's humility before God. Many Christians know this, but some get on the news now and then when they forget about that and make themselves the center instead of God the center. And the world loves to stone a person virtually today. But the second point of religion, and at least Christian faith, is that no sin cannot be forgiven. This seems to be said over and over. There's the parable of the hundred sheep where 99 are lost. 99 are there, but one is lost, and he will go find it. The prodigal son. Um, you know, there's, there's various examples of it. Or said in a positive way, all sins can be forgiven. And it doesn't necessarily matter how long you've been praying or believing. The point is that you come back. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum of saints. And that's what the non-believers don't understand. I certainly didn't. I would look at the faithful and think, why aren't they acting the way I think they should? How can they consider themselves anything but hypocrites? Well, that's what the problem was. I would think of someone who claims the title, Christian must never sin. And in the world today, we love, not really we anymore, I guess I used to, you'd love to see them fall. Think of different public figures who've gotten their hand in the cookie jar for one reason or another. We love to watch the righteous trip and fall on their face in public. And it's even in the Gospels with the Pharisees, because those who act overly righteous, we want them to see, we want to see them not be perfect. And this is part of the scapegoating thing. Scapegoats are somehow fun for humans to blame for problems. Unless you are the scapegoat, of course, like Steve Bartman from Chicago Cubs fan of famous infamy, I guess, actually not famous. He was infamous for touching a foul ball that Moises Alou was trying to catch and became the target of all of Chicago's anger. But all Christians fall on their face all the time, just as non-Christians do. The difference is that Christians go back to the hospital all the time on Sundays because they know they screw up.
The self puffs us up with pride. The minute we turn away from God and toward ourselves as king or queen, we begin to puff up. I think my favorite metaphor in the Bible is the puffing of bread, as the Jews in the Old Testament have the feast of unleavened bread after Passover. When we are puffed up, we are full of ourselves, like yeast has made us rise. We think we are more important than we really are. I can almost feel this happen when I start to focus on myself instead of God, when my orientation turns away from trust in God into fear for myself and my desires. It's almost like I'm holding my breath. I feel that rising anxiety in my neck, like a loaf in the oven filling up the pan. When I reorient back to God with trust instead of fear, the puff and rising anxiety fades, and that is the radical trust I need to remove fear and greed, the two things that I feel most plague our world today. So humility is the goal, and it's much harder than it sounds, and it makes me often question the reason for doing a podcast like this at all, because it seems to lack humility. And I, I do fail at that quite often. I've, I've linked to this uh, page before in the, the written version, but there are 17 signs that you lack humility from St. Jose Maria Escriva. And I, I fail at these every day. And one of these is the idea of the humble brag. The humble brag is what I most worry about writing this or reading this blog and making a podcast is there's some horrifying flavor of humble brag in this. And the only thing that keeps me from deleting every single episode is that I'm hoping someone who wants to quit drinking might stumble upon it and find a nudge in the right direction because it's so hard to know where to begin. I, I would add one more type of humility fail to St. Jose, um, Jose Maria Escriva's list. Uh, one that's much shorter and maybe easy to, easier to remember. I am the interrupting cow. The, un the interrupting cow is a knock-knock joke that goes like this. Knock-knock, who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow who moo. So you moo before the joke's over, yeah. Um, when someone is talking and I'm just waiting to talk or I'm nodding and saying, Yes, yes, and I want them to just hurry up and hand over the conch for my turn to blow on it. You know, it's hear ye. I have a personal anecdote that relates to your anecdote, but mine is better because it's about me. At that point, I'm already puffed up and pouring out of the pan. So it's one thing for me to say, my life is not about me, and another thing to take action and succeed in living that maxim. Uh, but I do know there are three things, and only three well, maybe four, that need to be in a loopback mechanism to pop the puff before my head gets too large. There's three rules to live by, and this is from Word on Fire, and then I added one more. And they kind of follow the three virtues of the Catholic Church, which is faith, hope, and charity. Number one, first rule, Christ must be the unwavering center of my life, so faith. Number two, remember I am a sinner who needs saving. And to me that follows hope. And number three is my life is not about me. And that follows charity. And then I'd add this, these, this addendum right here. 
see Christ in others instead of their faults. All right, let's add another one. How about this one? Stop seeking approval. You can get it through faith. Okay, that's it. No, there's one more. One more. How about this one? If I'm agitated by something, then the addiction to myself is returning. And you know what I need to do then? Is turn off the computer or phone. 90% of the time, if I'm agitated, I'm on the computer or the phone. And then what do I need to do? Return to step one. Step one, Christ must be the unwavering center of my life. Step two, remember I am a sinner who needs saving. Step three, my life is not about me. Thank you, Word on Fire, for those three rules. I think of those every day.